Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Amen. Well, church, you can go ahead and grab a seat. The year is 701 B.C. The people in the southern kingdom, the people of Judah, have watched as their capital city of Jerusalem, as the Assyrian army systematically destroyed the nation of Israel in the north. And at first, no doubt they were glad to hear about that destruction. See, Israel had become an enemy for Judah. They had become an enemy to Jerusalem. And and King Ahaz, who was reigning from Jerusalem at the time, he had actually given money to the king of Assyria so that they would come in and destroy Israel, their, their enemy to the north, and bring relief to Judah. But as we know from history and specifically as we know from the prophet Isaiah, King Ahaz got way more than he bargained for in that deal that he made with Assyria because he says like a river overflowing its banks. As soon as the nation of Assyria was done with Israel in the north, they kept right on coming. They kept right on moving down to the south intent on destroying Judah as their next conquest and their quest for kingdom building. And as we already saw in chapter one of Micah, for almost 20 years, the nation of Assyria pressed their campaign. They, they invaded the southern kingdom until they had conquered every single major city in the nation of Judah, except one, except their capital city in Jerusalem where the new king, Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, was reigning. Now, as you may remember from the opening verse of Micah that we saw a few weeks back, His work as a prophet covered almost a 50-year window. He says, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And this shift from King Ahaz to King Hezekiah could not have been a more stark contrast. See, Ahaz was a weak and wicked king. He was a king who turned his back on the Lord, who worshiped idols, and who only cared about getting power. But as 2 Kings 18 tells us, his son Hezekiah was a completely different kind of king. He says that he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with Hezekiah. Whenever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. All right, so let's together get this picture, right? When Ahaz was king, He wasn't just wicked, he was stupid. He was stupid because he ended up paying the nation of Assyria to come in and not just invade the north, but to actually destroy his own nation and take it almost completely to the ground. But when Hezekiah, his son, became king in place of his father Ahaz, he took his stand against the strongest nation in the world and he said, no, no, we're not gonna pay tribute to you. No, we are not going to surrender to your forces at the gates and we are not going to serve you because we are convinced that the Lord will and that he is able to deliver us. Again, as he said in 2 Kings, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. And the reason that he did that was because Hezekiah was the best king to come along in Judah since the days of King David, his ancestor. But what Micah is getting ready to show us this morning is that as hard as this can be to hear, and as countercultural as it is for us to say it, our best is never enough. Hezekiah was the best king that they had had in centuries. And what Micah is wanting to drive home here is that our best is never enough. Again, he was the best king in 300 years, and even he wasn't enough. 
to deliver the people from the enemies who were bigger and stronger than they were. But just because that's true, right? Just because our best is never enough, that doesn't leave us without hope. And as we're getting ready to see in Micah chapter five, verses one through six, which is where we're gonna be digging in this morning, the prophet wants to help us understand how weak we really are so that we can understand how strong our God is and how much we need him. And so that's where we're going. If you would, I invite you to pray with me and then we're gonna dig into Micah chapter five. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the reminder that our best is never enough, but that you don't leave us on our own. And as we open your word this morning, we pray for eyes to see wondrous things from your law. God, we need you to give us hearts that love your word and delight to surrender to it so that in that surrender, we might find the fullness of joy. And Holy Spirit, we wanna invite you now to meet us here, to move in power, to use us to do your job of glorifying the Father and the Son, just like you say you do and that you promise you will. And so do that work as only you can. Draw us together, draw us to Christ. May he be all in all. And as you fix our eyes on him, may we grow together to know, love, and follow him by his grace. We ask it all in his strong and beautiful name. Amen. Well, again, we are in Micah chapter five, verses one through six. And if you're using one of our Bibles, that is on page 778. Micah chapter five, verses one through six. The prophet says this. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops, Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel." And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances." and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. All right, so now that we have that whole text in front of us, I just wanna go back to verse one and show you why we started where we did this morning. The prophet Micah here opens up the chapter with a call to action. It's a call to action as he says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. And we need to, to understand where we're coming from, right? If you remember from last week, Micah's focus really from the very beginning of chapter four, has been on the amazing mercy of our God that we are all so desperate for. But we don't experience that mercy, and we don't get the grace of God instead of suffering. We don't get mercy in place of pain. No, we get it through our suffering. We get to experience God's mercy in the middle of our pain. And so as Micah here is calling the people to action, as he tells them that they have got a fight on their hands, he immediately adds that they simply do not have what it takes to win. It's what he means when he says that siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. See, what Micah's doing here is he's simply calling balls and strikes. He's simply telling them the situation as it stands, and he's trying to help the people move from fantasy land to reality. The fantasy, of course, was that as long as they had a good king, which they finally got in Hezekiah, they thought as long as they had a good king, as long as they were in their own land, as long as they had access to the temple, then everything was going to be fine. Then nobody could touch them. They had all the things lined up. Everything was in place. 
But the reality that he wanted them to understand was that the best king that they had had in centuries wasn't striking his enemies with a rod of justice. He wasn't shepherding their people with the rod of mercy, but he instead was being struck on the cheek by the rod of raw power in the face of the nation of Assyria. See, the people were surrounded. And so the people were deathly afraid. They needed to hear that that they could look for hope and peace, but they needed to know where to look. And before they could even hear that though, they had to come to grips with the fact again that, that their best simply wasn't going to be enough. And the same thing, if we're honest, is still true for every single one of us. So often when we're afraid, when we are facing circumstances and situations where we feel like we don't have control, our, our first impulse, our, our natural instinct, right? is just to fight those fears with our best because we think that, that our best explanations are gonna help us control our fears. Or we think that our best efforts will help us overcome our fears. Or we think that our best experiences may just be effective in drowning out those fears. But what Mike is telling us here though is that our best is never enough. Our best is never enough because God is too holy because we are too sinful, because our hearts are too dark and our focus is too focused on ourselves. Again, our best is never enough because God's unrivaled glory requires perfection. Our God demands holiness. But again, as we have seen from the very beginning of Micah, unrivaled glory of God always paves the way for unexpected grace because even though our best is never enough, God's best is. God's best is always enough. And that is what the prophet is promising here. And so with that as our focus, with that as our hope, with God's best as our anchor that we are holding on to tightly, it sets us free, not to fight on our own, but rather to fight fear with faith, knowing that the victory already belongs to us because of Christ and because of what he has done. And so to help us do that, to help us fight fear with faith, Micah shows us that God's best isn't something, it's someone. God's best is a person. And as Micah shows us who that someone is, what's amazing about this text is that he really does paint one of the clearest pictures of the Messiah in the entire Old Testament. He's painting the clearest picture of the Messiah, the promised one that God said he was going to send, really in the entire Old Testament. And the very first thing that Micah shows us is that the Messiah, God's best, was going to come from Bethlehem. In verse two, he says it this way, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now, you may recognize this, right? It's just one of the the classic Christmas texts. We often turn to this in Advent season and we go back and we say, look, yes, we we knew that Jesus was coming from Bethlehem because Matthew, Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter two that when the wise men came to Herod looking for the Messiah, that he asked the chief priests and the scribes of the day, he turns to them and he says, okay, where's the Messiah gonna be born? Where is he supposed to be coming from so that he could seek out to kill him? And this is the text that the scribes and the the teachers of the law go to for their answer. But while that's true and while that's as powerful as it is true, this is also one of the situations where no doubt this prophet is speaking better than he knew because Micah was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that that this doesn't have any meaning for Micah's first audience. It just means that they wouldn't have gotten the full picture like we are able to on this side of Christ. But what they would have seen in this reference to Bethlehem is that they needed deliverance. And when they needed that deliverance most, God was able to bring it 
from the most unexpected place. See, Bethlehem in Ephrathah, that Bethlehem was where David was born, the king of kings of that time. And when God first made David king, it wasn't because of where he was from. It wasn't because of his family connections or his prestige. It wasn't because of who he was related to or how impressive David was. No, David was just a simple shepherd from a small town that no one had ever really heard of. He says it's too small to even be considered among the clans of Judah. But David was a man after God's own heart. And like we talked about last week, God chose this David to be king. And he promised that he was going to send the Messiah in his line as one of his descendants. And so for Micah and for his people facing what felt like certain death, they weren't pondering the theology of this, right? They weren't trying to figure out how the, how the big picture doctrinal things fit together like we tend to approach these kinds of questions. Now, this was no mere academic question for them. This was a matter of life and death. Again, their best king in centuries had just been mocked and ridiculed by the most powerful army in the world as they shouted from the wall of Jerusalem that if the people in that city did not surrender to the king of Assyria, then they were gonna have to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. That's what they're yelling at them from the wall. That's the taunt that they're giving. And in the face of that kind of terror, in the face of that kind of fear, the prophet Micah knew that the people needed to remember that God had delivered them before and he was able to do it again. He'd done it before and he was gonna be able to do it again, even though they didn't know how all those pieces were gonna fit together. And church, what we still need to hear in all of this is that God is still able God is still able to do so much more than we can imagine with so much less than we think. But if we lose sight of the things that he's done for us in the past, we're gonna forget what he's able to do in the future. And then when we're really up against it, when we're really facing things that we don't feel like we have the ability to overcome on our own, we need to understand and remember that our God has a plan, that he is able to do everything that he's promised and that we can trust him to keep his word even when it seems as unlikely as raising up a great king from one of the most unexpected places, one of the most insignificant towns in all of the nation. So as Micah shows us God's best, he tells us that the Messiah is gonna be born in Bethlehem, but that is just the beginning for Micah. And as he continues to, to paint this picture, as he continues to give us this portrait of the Messiah, the second thing that he says is that the Messiah was going to be a future and a past king. He's gonna be a future and a past king. Look again at verse two, where God addresses Bethlehem directly. He says, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, as hard as it can be for us to wrap our heads around a concept like this, what this has to mean here is that the king that God promised was still future. He was still to come. He was still going to be a future king because he says that he shall come forth. But at the same time, at the same time that he is a future king who shall come forth, he also says that at the same moment that he is also past, which is why God says that his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He's future and he's past. The Messiah was going to be a human king, in other words, in David's line, who was coming to keep God's promise, to save God's people, just like God had been saying from the very beginning. But, but this king, this king that he had promised, as human as he was going to be, was going to be so much more than just human. And the reason that I say that, the reason I believe we have to say that here, is because no mere human has their origin from ancient days, as Micah puts it. 
No, this king that God promised to send was a king who was, a king who is, and a king who will always be. He was a king who has no beginning and a king who has no end. He was a king who was the same yesterday and today and forever. And church, when God sent this future past king into the world, heaven scraped the pavement and glory came down to the dust as the son of God took on flesh so that he could take the sins of the world on his shoulders and so that he could carry us as his people on those same shoulders into the very presence of the living God. Church, this is why when Jesus came, he was able to boldly proclaim before Abraham was, I am. That's the the same passion, the same impulse that he's trying to help the people understand. And it's why John the Baptist said, when he was preparing the way for Jesus, that he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It's also why we can trust that this future and past king is with us and for us at every moment because we know that he has never not reigned and he will not fail and he will not stop reigning now. And that's actually the the, the third thing that Micah the prophet shows us about our Messiah in this text. As he tells us about our future past king from Bethlehem, what he tells us next is that this king will never fail. He says, he'll never fail. Look at how he says it in verse three. He says, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now, if you're anything like me, you read a text like this and you probably wonder why Micah says, therefore, as the transition here in verse three. But if you're not like me, you're at least asking that question now since I brought it up, right? And so I'm gonna answer it either way and we'll, we'll move together at the same, at the same pace, hopefully. But, but the reason that word, therefore, matters so much is because if we miss this, We really do miss one of the most important realities about our Messiah that Micah is trying to drive home for us here. Again, Micah has just told us that our future past king is unlimited by time, which means he can't be judged by his actions based on our limited experience. We can't look at at the little piece of the puzzle that we can see and then say that this eternal God is failing in his plans and in his purposes because we don't understand it from our little perspective. Now, as we saw at the beginning, Again, that the people were facing what no doubt felt to them like certain destruction. They needed deliverance desperately and they had no idea where that deliverance was going to come from and all of their best efforts. Again, even their best king had failed them and they didn't know what to do. But what they needed to understand is that when their best failed, God didn't. God hadn't failed. And when Micah says that our coming king wasn't limited by time, therefore, What he's doing is he's helping us understand that it means that God is working in time to accomplish an eternal purpose. If God is truly eternal, then we can't judge him by what we can see. However, we can know that he is working in time, in the moment, in our circumstances to accomplish an eternal purpose. And so yes, he was gonna give them up until the time when she who was in labor had given birth because he had a purpose and judgment that needed to be fulfilled. But it was just as true that then, after that time, the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel, as he says here, because judgment always gives way to mercy for those who are trusting the future king who never fails. See, the hard part about this is that it means that that no matter how difficult things are for us right now in this moment, no matter how much suffering we may have to endure, no matter how painful our circumstances right here, right now get, We've got to bow before the reign of the eternal king. We've got to bow before him. But as Micah is quick to remind us, 
It doesn't just mean that. See, because of who our Messiah is, we don't just have to bow before his reign. We also get to lean into his love. We don't just bow before his reign, we lean into his love because the Messiah isn't just our future past king who never fails, but he is also our strong shepherd. Look at how he puts this at the beginning of verse four. He says, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. Now, one of the things that I love most about this verse is how the prophet brings together both the strength of the Lord and the love of the Lord. And the reason that I love this text so much, the reason that I, I love this, this combination so much is because God's strength is on full display in his Messiah. There is no one that can challenge, no one that can question, no one that can threaten the Messiah's security and reign. And I, I love it even more though, because as true as that is in Jesus, all the strength of God is being wielded by a shepherd who is not fighting against us, but by one who is fighting for us and fighting to defend us from every enemy that will ever come our way. Church, there is a tenderness in the toughness of this shepherd king. And there is a fierceness that cannot be challenged without a cost. There is a tenderness in our shepherd king, but there is also a fierceness, a fierceness to fight, a fierceness to defend those he loves and to protect those that he has committed himself to, to guard and save and protect and rescue his children. And in fact, as, as Micah paints this picture of the Messiah, he shows us that our strong shepherd shall stand, he says, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. That is, our Messiah has a name that strikes fear into the hearts of his enemies because all of the strength of the Lord, all the strength of Yahweh is in his hands and because he is fighting for those he loves to protect us and to make sure that nothing can ever pull us away from him. But how often do we treat this Jesus? How often do we treat this Messiah more like a tyrant king than like a good shepherd? How often do we cower away from his strength because we somehow some point bought into the lie that he's gonna use his strength to fight against us instead of using it to fight for us and to restore us and to protect us and to guide us? And how often have we hidden from him in fear instead of running to him in faith, trusting that he loves us? Church, our Messiah is a strong shepherd. And when all of our best efforts fail, we know that we can lean into his love, trusting that the same name and the same strength that strikes fear into the hearts of every one of his enemies is what gives us deep and lasting joy as his children. And it's a joy that can never be taken away. And for all of these reasons, for all of these reasons and so many more, our Messiah is worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship, which is the next thing that Micah shows us in verse four, is he adds, and they shall dwell secure. For now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. That is, we can be confident, no matter what our circumstances may be, that our never failing shepherd king wins the war and when he does, as his people, as his sheep of his pasture, as his children, when he wins the war, we get to share in the victory. And when we do, the name of Jesus, our Messiah, is lifted up. It is made great to the ends of the earth, as Micah says here, so that as John Piper has so often reminded those who listen to him that God gets the glory and we get the joy. That's the dynamic in every single one of these kinds of moments. And when that's true, the question that we've got to ask is in the middle of the struggle, right in the middle of the pain, in the middle of our battles. Are we gonna get distracted by all of the enemies that are at the gates, by, by all of the things that are coming at us? 
Or are we going to remember where we are in the story and how the story ends and stay focused on Christ our Messiah? Are we going to give in to despair? Or will we lean into Christ and sing in the face of suffering because we know that on the other side of suffering is glory, that on the other side, we are going to get to share in the victory of our Savior and rest in the finished work that he has promised he has done for us. Church, our Messiah is worthy of our worship because he shares his victory with us. And in his victory, we can dwell secure. And when our eyes are on this Messiah, when our eyes are on Jesus, when, when, we're, when we're focused on our future and past, never failing, strong and majestic, victorious shepherd king from Bethlehem, then Micah promises at that point, he promises in verse five, that he shall be our peace. This Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of God, he shall be our peace. And really that's, that's what all of us are after, right? I mean, isn't peace what you're looking for? whenever we numb our minds to make the pain go away? Isn't peace what we're after when we avoid hard conversations and try to pretend like everything's okay? If we're honest, isn't peace the reason that we're willing to sacrifice so much and to endure so much? Sometimes even when we shouldn't, just in order to get people to stay in close relationship with us. And isn't peace what drives us to pretend to be or to, to think something that's not really real because we're afraid of the consequences if we don't? And in that pursuit, in that pursuit of what we think is peace, what do we do? Well, every time we, we do our best, right? Well, that's all we can do, right? We, we, we do our best. We think that's gotta be enough only to find out over and over and over again that it's not. We find out we're faced with the fact that our best is never enough because in those situations, relationships still fall apart. People still fail. Sin still happens and life is still hard. But what Micah is here to help us see is that we are not limited by our best. We're not limited by the best that we can do because sure, our best is never enough and that's okay because God's best is. God's best is always enough and because God's best is the promised Messiah who is himself our peace. That means that no matter what we're facing, we can fight fear with faith. No matter what we're facing, because of who Christ is and what he promises, we can fight fear with faith. In fact, that's why the prophet ends in verses five and six by saying that when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. See, after looking ahead, after almost getting lost in the, the future coming of Jesus, after getting so caught up in the peace of Christ that, that he was coming to bring as the Messiah, Micah now here in verses five and six really does just come crashing back into the present where the people are still under siege. He comes crashing back into the present where the Assyrian army is still waiting at the gates. They're still breathing threats and murder. They're still threatening the people that they're going to kill them and make them eat their own dung. And King Hezekiah is still just a good, weak king who is absolutely incapable of delivering the people. In other words, nothing at all has changed about their circumstances since verse one, when they were standing in face of their king getting struck on the cheek with the rod of the king of Assyria and standing under this siege that nothing has seemed to change, but, but something has changed, but it wasn't in their circumstances, right? Something has changed, but it's about their perspective, which is why we see here in these verses 
what some commentators believe was a common taunt song against an enemy army. They're approaching this very differently, and they take up this taunt song, confident of the victory that is going to be coming to them, even though they've already confronted their inability to gain that victory themselves. And as they take up this song, they resolve that they're going to do their best. They're going to commit to raising against him seven shepherds and, and eight princes of men, no matter what he may throw at them, no matter what may come at them from every side as they are under siege in the city. But even as they do that, even as they commit to giving it their best, what they've learned even in these last few verses, what the coming of the Messiah absolutely turns on its head and makes completely different for them is that only God's best is going to be enough. Only God's best is going to, to really be sufficient for them. Only God's best will do. And they know beyond doubt that he shall deliver us as they declare in verse six. And so with their focus fixed on their promised Messiah, on their future past shepherd king, the one who never fails and always wins, the one who shares his victory with his people, the one who is worthy of all praise and is himself our peace. With their faith firmly in this Messiah, these people didn't have to pretend. They didn't have to pretend that their circumstances were different. They didn't have to pretend that there was nothing wrong. They didn't have to pretend that things weren't hard but they could instead face those fears, knowing that Jesus, the promised Messiah, was going to be enough for them and that he was going to deliver them. And so my question this morning, as we move into our time of responses, is simply this. What are you afraid of? And are you fighting fear with faith? What are you afraid of? And are you fighting fear with faith? Because if you're not, what we see here, what we know from, from painful experience, is that we're gonna keep running over and over up against our limitations as we try to do the best that we can and find out over and over that it's never enough. But if you are looking to Jesus, if you are trusting this Messiah to be enough for you, if you are fighting real fears with real faith in a real savior, then you can rest in the truth of Romans 8, verses 31 to 39, where Paul asks this question. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake. We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Church, our best is never enough, but our God is always enough. And his best is always sufficient for us. And when we have the Messiah, when we have God's best as our own, we can fight fear with faith and we can rest in his love as we lean in and know that he will lead us everywhere he wants us for his glory, for our joy. If you would please pray with me and then we're gonna respond together. Father, thank you for this word.